Welcome to the second look at our recent Direct Marketing Association Nonprofit Federations Conference in Chicago. We'll be delving deeper into our email list acquisition efforts for the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare to give you a behind-the-scenes look at launching a successful large-scale digital fundraising program. My name is Christopher Morris and I'm the Director of Digital Services for TLC's Advocacy and Political Clients and with me today is Matt Sini, Vice President of Agency Services. So Chris, we're here to chat a little bit about the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare and specifically the case study that uh, uh, you presented at the conference and we're going to dive a little bit deeper into that. Um, but first, uh, just you know, talk a little more in depth about uh, uh, for our audience, some of the challenges that you know, this was a client that we began working with in 2013, mm -hmm. uh, but they had tried a number of things uh, in the years prior to that that just they, they weren't gaining any traction um, with their email and, and digital um, fundraising. Uh, tell us a little bit about what, what they had tried and what was or was not working. The results were generally flat, and the reason for that is they had tried appending a bunch of email records to their direct mail file as an attempt to start a digital program. We worked with them to purge a lot of the bad emails that they had, um, as well as develop a nationwide year-round program focused primarily on Facebook acquisition and other opt-in techniques to pull live, you know, fully opted in people who are actually interested in hearing the message. So acquiring new email addresses, yes. opt-in email addresses, mm -hmm. and, and mainly through Facebook, correct? Correct. And what other uh, things did we see, or, or were there any other challenges? One thing we did was to put together an ongoing testing and tracking process so we could actually evaluate how these different audiences and channels were doing for them. That way we're not just spending money on platform A or B, we are able to see what's actually working and what's resonating with their audiences. From a new strategy standpoint, it was really kind of twofold, acquiring opt-in email addresses uh, using Facebook and testing some other channels there, and then with their email program, just, uh, just an ongoing constant testing, whether it's creative, copywriting, send time optimization, things like that. What kind of results did they see from that? Yep, the overall cost to acquire was 58 cents per email through Facebook. We grew the email list by roughly 115%, adding 120,000 some emails to the file. We also increased year-over-year -year online revenue by 118%, and emails collected via Facebook broke even after an average of 13 months on file. That's pretty impressive. So after the initial investment, it took just over a year for that to break even. Correct. That's great. That's great. And 120,000 new email addresses, mm -hmm. and, and that's more than they had active emails before the program. Is that correct? Correct. And to get into that a little bit, when we purged the bad emails, we got rid of anyone who hadn't opened an email in the last two years. Just sort of, you know, getting rid of all the dead weight, making sure yeah. that we're only sending to people who are actually opening our emails. Then we also created an active list, quote unquote, which was anyone who'd opened an email in the last year. And that's who we primarily focused our efforts on. That's great. So if someone in our audience is at a national nonprofit and they're in charge of the digital fundraising, what would be the first two or three steps that you would recommend they, they take? If, if they're looking and they have, you know, maybe a hundred or a couple hundred thousand emails and their performance just hasn't been great with their program, what, what would you recommend they do? The first step I'd recommend is implementing something similar as far as an active list, figure out who's, who's opening, who isn't, who's active, who isn't. Second would be to actively grow the file. And so go out there, do some paid and non-paid efforts to bring in new opt-in emails, bring in some fresh blood to the file. And then thirdly would be to 
test different messages, different techniques, ask questions of the audience to see what they're into, what, what resonates with them. So let's chat a little bit more about the opt-in email collection, the acquisition. Mm -hmm. You mentioned tested Facebook advertising. Were there any other channels that we also tested along with that? Yeah, we also tested a platform called Care2. It was a petition site. Mm -hmm. I say it was because we're no longer using them for the program. And why is that? Is just the performance between compared to Facebook or? Actually, that gets into something that I'm going to talk about here in just a second because it's kind of a mixed bag when it comes to techniques or things to look for when you're looking at opt-in. It's sort of a mix between looking at cost to acquire and revenue generated. Generally, you want to look for the lowest cost to acquire, but that might not always be the smartest investment. So if I can spend, let's say, $1.50 per email, but I'm getting three times the revenue, then that's still a smart decision. So you're balancing Correct. quantity and, uh, versus quality. And Correct. really trying to find that equilibrium where you're getting the, the lowest cost, but also uh, a high quality opt-in yep. email. Yeah, so with Care2, we had a much higher cost to acquire, but we did have a higher average gift. The problem, though, being that the donation rate was much lower on par as far as the number of people coming in through Care2 who donated versus the total file of Care2 people. Whereas the Facebook people, they weren't giving as much on average, but because the cost to acquire was roughly a fifth, we were able to get five Facebook people versus one Care2 person. And that, of course, helped us generate more revenue for the program. Absolutely. No, that, and that makes sense. You know, it's, it's, it's all that balancing between quantity and quality. So, Chris, speak to a little bit about, um, let's dive a little bit into the details here with, with this uh, case study here. So, um, we started working with the National Committee. So, tell us a little bit about what was the first couple things that we started to do when we took over the program. The first thing we did was an audience assessment. Facebook allows us to take their member and donor file, upload that into Facebook, and then gain insights based on matched users' interactions with the platform. So we were able to see demographic information, wealth indicators, a bunch of different consumer data on the file, as well as see what content they interacted in within Facebook, so like what they liked, and what different types of things they engaged with online. All right, so we're diving a little bit deeper into this case study, and, and let's specifically look at some of the best practices. I know you talk about this all the time around the office, the, you know, starting with an audience assessment whenever you onboard a new client, look at what they're doing. Tell us about uh, what we did, what the best practice was around the audience assessment uh, with the client. Yeah, the point here being we can make a bunch of optimizations or tweaks to a program, which helps to steer a ship, but it's always best to start in the right direction. So an audience assessment allows us to take a client's donor or member file, upload that directly into Facebook, and then use their information on the audience to learn more about them. Um, so we did that with NCPSSM, um, went to the Audience Insights tab, which is totally free in Facebook, and it showed us not just demographic wealth or consumer data, it also showed us what sort of content people liked on Facebook. So we could get a sense of differences between mail and online, as well as messaging topics or ways to speak to people. Yeah, it sounds like a great tool. Um, you just be able to upload your data right into Facebook and then and, and see that information. Mm -hmm. Let's jump over to, to messaging and creative, some of the best yep. practices around that. Absolutely. Uh, first thing would be to make sure that your messaging is clear and concise and contains a direct call to action. That way, people can easily understand what you're saying and know exactly what you're wanting them to do. Secondly, I'd say to keep the images that you're using, keep the text within those images to less than 20% of the space. That speaks a bit to the first point, which is keeping it concise. 
but it also allows for your ad to be served more broadly. Some platforms actually scale back your advertising if you're above that a little bit. That way you can make sure that people are seeing your ad. And then finally, I'd focus more on using either image creative or those quick square Instagram style videos as opposed to rectangle. The horizontal rectangles. Yeah, yeah. So using the, the square as opposed to those. And that's primarily, I think, because there's more real estate. So people see those more. Mm-hmm. They stand out. So that's always good. That makes sense. So customer journey is kind of been a hot trend, hot buzzword the last few years. Uh, and I know with, with this client, uh, we spent a lot of time really thinking about, uh, from a strategic standpoint, uh, what the, the donor journey is or the prospective donor journey is. Speak a little bit about the best practices in regards to that. Obviously, the customer journey begins with the initial ad that a person sees and engages with. From there, we start them into an automated welcome series, um, which begins within 24 hours of them signing the petition that we ask them to do from the ad. Um, That sort of introduces who the client is, or in this case, NCPSSM, introduces who they are, what they're about. We have a video in there to help tell their story so people understand who they are and why they should care or or become more involved. Uh, Second step in that four-part email series is to then sort of try and get them to engage in some way. So we start with with a simple ask, which is usually follow them on Twitter or like their Facebook page. So we were asking them to do something that isn't giving money. They had previously signed a petition, so we're just trying to do something that's very easy for people to do. Uh, Third email in the series comes a couple days after the second. And that one asks them to talk more about themselves, if you will, let us know who they are. So we have them fill out a survey, which helps us to inform the file on who they are, what they're interested in, why they care about Social Security and Medicare, what it means to them, that kind of stuff. And then the fourth email in the series is a fundraising email that asks them to donate to the organization to support their cause. We saw that the vast majority of people who don't open a welcome series email, one of those four initial emails, won't ever open an email for the organization. So what we did is we instituted a activation program that starts right after the welcome series. So after the fourth email, if you haven't opened anything, you're going to get essentially a rerun of that welcome series, but with the focus then being technically on the subject lines, where we're really trying to get you to open those emails. We've had some success. We normally get an additional 1% to 2% of people opening those who haven't opened the welcome series. But at that point, anyone who hasn't opened an email after those eight emails is considered part of that full file list, that two-year list, not in the active list anymore. And once you've opened one of those emails, you're then into the active list and you get our normal email program. So let's talk a little bit about uh, audience selection and some of the best practices that go along with that. Absolutely. What we started with was whatever the prime audiences would be, if you will, so like starting as close organization and growing out in, in rings, if you will, uh, to expand the audience and the reach that way. So we started with files of members and donors. In this case, people who gave in mail, but we didn't have an email for them yet. Um, so trying to get emails for people that are already interacting with the organization giving money. Our second audience were people who were visiting the website but hadn't signed up or taken action. So it was a remarketing audience or retargeting audience. So if you'd visited the website but hadn't signed up for emails yet, we were serving ads to you if you're on Facebook. Our third audience is people who had liked our page on Facebook or engaged with content but hadn't actually signed up or done anything on the client's website. 
So that was audience three. And so as you can see, we're, we're going with sort of the prime audiences and then we're sort of getting to less and less engaged people. Um, our next audience is people who were lookalike models of audiences one and two. So anyone who was a lookalike model based off of members and donors, we were serving ads to them. And then we also did a prospect quote unquote audience, which is basically a topic defined audience. So did we roll all these out at once or was it just kind of started with core audience and then added in additional audiences as, as you expanded outward? Yeah, we started with, uh, I think three or four audiences and then expanded out some others. Gotcha. Um, so we started with uh, members and donors. We started out with remarketing and we started out with the lookalike models. So with that, since we already had to upload our file of donors and members anyways, Facebook was then able to give us a lookalike model of people who Facebook thought were similar to those people. So those are the three that we started with initially. Great. Uh, best practices, when to go native? <laughs> yeah, native, this sort of plays into the, the customer journey quite a bit, actually. Native here, sort of broadly speaking, being whether or not the experience that a person is having is within one platform. So for a publisher site, if you go to some news site, native is different than what it is for Facebook. That's because they're different platforms or different websites. For Facebook, native means the whole process of clicking on an ad and filling out a petition or other uh, technique for opt-in email collection is all done within the platform. You're not going to a third-party site. So, so I stay within Facebook Correct. throughout that whole process. Correct. Generally speaking, that drives lower costs to acquire, more signers, so more engagement. Um, so it's generally speaking the preferred or best way to go. Um, so problems with that are more on the technical side in that the default way of getting your data out is to manually pull the data out of Facebook and use it. So if you want to do something that's real time based on when they signed up, you have to use some sort of API or technical data the you know, application. Integration into your, Correct. Your, your CRM. Correct. And so we didn't do that for NCPSSM. And the reason we did it wasn't actually on the technical side. The reason we didn't do it is because NCP SSM actually provides official petitions when you sign their petition. So unlike for some people where that's sort of a, a technique or a method to drive opt-in emails, they're actually delivering every petition to Congress. So they need a lot more information, so that has to go through the platform that's doing that. So we couldn't do native advertising for them in Facebook. So we had to have people, when you clicked on the ad, it went to their website you filled it out on their website and then the website sent it to Congress. And that can still be effective, obviously, as mm -hmm. we, we've seen with this campaign. Just yep. speak to briefly some of the best practices when, when you are driving someone to a landing page uh, to complete a form. What are some of the best practices that, uh, that we recommend? Well, they're very similar to the ads themselves as far as keeping the messaging clear and concise and very direct for your calls to action so people know exactly what they're being asked to do. Secondly, and this is actually very important, is to make sure that the look and feel of the landing page is similar to the look and feel of the advertising. So if somebody clicks on an ad and goes to your landing page or your website, they don't feel like they've been misdirected somewhere else. So the website name, the URL, the messaging, the ask, they should all match up. So people don't feel like they arrived at the wrong place. And then what you'll see is bounce rates be very high if that's the case. Uh, so let's shift gears here and okay. talk about maximizing uh, the ROI, the return on investment. This is something, a uh, metric that's very important for direct <laughs> marketers out there, membership directors, development directors. 
we all know ROI is what you know helps drive a lot of decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, speak a little bit about how we maximize that. What sure. are some of the things we do with the onboarding efforts and what are some of the key metrics we look at or, or tactics and strategies that go into maximizing ROI? Sure. And fortunately or unfortunately, this all starts with how you set up the campaign. So you have to have the proper tracking or you're not going to be able to associate future revenue to the cost of onboarding these people or any other additional costs that go into these audiences. So for NCPSSM, we created what we called uh, origin codes. These are numeric codes that we've tracked to the platform and the audiences that we've used. So for the five different audiences that we discussed earlier, there are five different origin codes for those people. So that way we know exactly what we spent on each audience and then what each audience has brought in. So not only tracking that they came in through Facebook, but Correct. tracking that they were through the retargeting audience yep. or the lookalike audience yep. or... Or the member audience. The member or the, audience. Yeah. Exactly. Wow, that's, that's yep. pretty expensive tracking. Yeah, it's, it, it's also because for some of those audiences, we'd be willing to pay more for those people. So we want to be able to look at those metrics and make sure that that makes sense. Uh -huh. So somebody, you know, the theory being if somebody's already giving you money, they're just not in our online or email audience, that we might be willing to pay more for those emails than we would somebody who just has a general affinity for social security. Some of the other metrics or things that we look at beyond just setting up the tracking or what that enables us to do is not just the break even, you know, how long it takes to recoup that initial cost, but also something that we call a multi-channel LTV or lifetime value. What we've seen so far is that the presence of an email on the donor file increases the LTV by roughly $36 to $39. Wait a minute. So just a, a donor having their email address on yep. file, an organization having an email address for a donor, uh, you said increases the lifetime value by almost $40? Correct. Because we found that even if the person doesn't donate through our program online, they, you know, because for some of these folks, we're talking about seniors. A lot of them prefer to donate through mail, mm -hmm. but if they're getting our emails, because we're sending emails regularly and consistently, so when they get the mail pieces, even if they don't give it to us online, they're still giving to the organization. They're giving more often and more money. So they're receiving the steady drumbeat, the steady mm -hmm. messaging through email. They're reading it. They're understanding what's going on, what the organization's doing, the fight in Congress, et cetera, et cetera. And then when that direct mail piece shows up, uh, you know, yep. three, four weeks down the road, they're primed and ready to donate. That's, 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 uh, exactly that's the theory behind it? Yeah. Wow. Right. A couple other things is to keep in mind, not necessarily on ROI, but to help you get there. A couple of technical terms, if you will, is uh, CTA, which is cost to acquire. Some platforms call that CPA for cost per acquisition, but it's essentially the same thing. Not certified public accountant. <laughs> not in this case. In other cases, yes. Um, another is click-through rate or CTR versus clicks to open or CTO. For a lot of the testing that we do, we prefer CTO because it helps us drill down to that specific part of the funnel for the program. Uh, essentially helps us maximize or test the engagement of an email. And then also donation rates and average gift. So just a couple other metrics that are out there that are important to keep in mind when you're trying to evaluate or optimize the health of your email program. That's great. So when you're looking at optimizing your email program mm -hmm. um, or, or the advertising that goes into it, tell us yep. a little bit of, you know, what are some of the keys to testing and trying out some of these different things? What do you look for? What do you do? Where do you make your tweaks and your optimization? Well, the first thing I want to speak to here is the difference between testing and optimizations. Because for a lot of people, 
the word testing gets thrown around, whether it's clients or agencies or conferences, um, it's all testing, testing, testing. Um, but what we found is there's a distinct difference between testing to actually learn or get something actionable out of it and testing to optimize a one-off email. The difference here being if we're testing to learn, we're testing to actually evaluate and change the program. So we're looking at uh, longer term changes and effects. So what we do there is we make sure that we've tested for long enough, so usually a month to two months, to make sure that we've accumulated enough data to be statistically significant. The flip side of this is optimizations. That'd be something more like subject line testing, and that's more for the actual optimization of a specific email when we're looking at our program. That's how we verbally like differentiate between the different types of testing. Statistical significance, obviously, uh, when you are performing tests, uh, having that scientific approach uh, to make sure that the results you're getting are statistically significant, especially if you're going to change something in the program or change a tactic or, or a strategy within that, mm -hmm. you want to have that. How do you reach statistical significance testing results? Tell our audience a little bit about that. Yes, the first thing is to actually make sure that you've got enough data and it's specifically tied to what the effect is that you're trying to measure. So we broke out our testing into three sort of parts of the funnels, if you will, whether that's testing to affect open rates or engagement or click rates or fundraising, you know, like giving. So everything was tied to one of those three funnels. Um, then we made sure that we had enough data to actually inform what we were doing. So what we found was if you were testing something that was more top of funnel, we didn't need as much time to test it. Um, so normally opens and clicks, we need a month, maybe two months. But if we were doing some sort of fundraising, like something where we're testing what we were doing on the actual donation form, that would take two months at least. And that's because the amount of time to get the size, the volume that you need to be yep. statistical significance just takes a little bit longer. Yeah. You know, if we send, let's say, 100,000 emails, most of those people will open the email few of those people actually click on an email and even fewer will actually get to the donation page and give. So the lower down the funnel, the less people there are per email that we send who engage that way. So we would need more time. The key is really just sticking to that protracted, prolonged drumbeat of we're collecting the data, we're collecting the data, we're collecting the data. So you get to statistical significance. If after like two or three months, um, you know, you've been to what you're normally seeing where you hit it and you haven't reached statistical significance yet, that's Fine. Sometimes your test is too close to call, if you will, so you'll never really get statistical significance. So let me run a scenario by you. Yep. Let's say I'm, I'm working for an organization. I want to improve our mill program. Maybe we haven't done a whole lot of testing and maybe don't have a whole lot of time to, to try out a bunch of things. What would be you know, two or three key things that you'd recommend uh, that, that I could do or an organization could do to at least get the ball rolling on working some statistically significant tests into their program so that they can make the correct optimizations and improve their results? Well, to step back one second, I would recommend that they actually come up with a plan, you know, like a schedule of what they want to test, that they test one thing at a time, regardless of where it is in the funnel. If your testing opens this month, then your testing opens this month, and if this is your test, then this is your test for that month. So don't try and do too much. Pick one thing. Yeah, yeah pick one thing at a time. That. Just do that um, so that you can focus on a specific part of that funnel. And that helps to alleviate any doubts as to what's actually affecting your program. So if you have too many things going on, then you're not 100% sure that it was this. Because it could have been that and it might have been the other thing. So just setting it up so that you know and can actually take action. All right, so let's look at a specific test. And our audience isn't able to see this, but I'm looking at this chart. And there's a number of different things that we tested over the course of the year. 
pick one of these or, or a couple of these and let's talk through kind of what we did. I see uh, a frequency testing. Tell us a little bit about that and how you went about that for the client. Yep, so frequency testing, we were uh, looking at how often we sent emails and what effect that had on the file. What we actually learned after a month of testing that was that sending more did better. Well, and this is what, as I recall correctly, and one thing that I think a lot of, a lot of organizations uh, you get concerned about is are we, they ask the question, are we emailing our people too, too much? much? Yeah. And, and this was a test sort of uh, to try to answer that question. Mm -hmm. And what we determined was, no, we actually weren't emailing them enough. enough. <laughs> yeah, so, so now we send a lot more frequently than we used to. Some others I like on here, if you're starting out and you haven't done these yet, is a uh, MRC-HPC test, sort of testing the difference between putting in... What is what is MRC and what is HPC for... Yep, MRC for is most recent contribution and HPC is the highest previous contribution. So if you get an email that asks you to give, you know, five, 10 or $15, that could be static, but what we recommend doing is actually plugging in one of these variables in there instead. So if so, I made a donation, yep. you know, six months ago for $20, my email instead of saying 5, 10, 15 might say 20, 30, 40 or something okay. like that. Okay. Now, if that was the highest you've given over the year, then that would be HBC. If you a week ago gave $10, then your MRC would be the 10, 20, 30, maybe if you will, exactly. but it'd be based off that 10. Another one I like on here is the copy length test. Um, what we did here is we tested longer emails versus shorter emails. Um, and what we found out was that shorter did better. Um, you can't be so short that people don't know what you're saying and can't really get behind what your message is. But we found five to seven paragraphs was pretty good. Now these aren't page long paragraphs, but they're five to seven, you know, a couple sentence paragraphs worked best. So basically a concise, clear message yeah. in delivering that it might take uh a little bit more in one email, it might be a little bit less in one yeah. another email, depending on the, the issue or the topic, but mm -hmm. be as clear and as concise. That makes a lot of sense. All right, so let's pick one more of these. Uh, there's another to choose from, but tell us about the in the signature using uh, the signer and not, not only the signature, but the photograph or a picture of them. Something that we tested with a bunch of our other clients and we're testing it right now for NCPSSM is using a photo of the person who's quote unquote sending the email. So whether that's a president of your organization or a director of some kind, putting their photo in next to the whole, you know, sincerely, John Smith. The theory there being that you're actually putting a face to a name. And we've seen for a lot of our other clients that that substantially increases giving. All right, so just to recap, Chris, thanks so much for carving out some time today to walk through this case study and go more in detail and in a deeper dive in uh, beyond kind of what you were able to do at the conference. For those of you listening, thank you for listening. We hope that this deeper dive gave you a few more insights, gave you some different things to think about, whether it was a refresher on best practices around audience assessments, message creative, customer journeys, things like that, and or some of the things around testing, hopefully some of the specific tests that Chris talked about, maybe that sparked some ideas for you to test with your own program. So we definitely appreciate Chris, your insights there and, and, and appreciate folks listening and hope that you're able to take some of this back and improve your own programs. Chris, before we go, any last thing to add? Yeah, I would just ask that our listeners let us know their thoughts on how to bolster an email acquisition campaign if they're running one currently, as well as any questions they might have for us. And then, of course, if you guys like this podcast, please let us know and share this with others who might be interested. 
Thank you for joining us today and listening. Please stay tuned for more second looks from the TLC team.